We're in a series about the, uh, the power of commitment, making commitments. And it's an amazing thing that human beings can do this. We can commit ourselves to things and to people and to causes and to values. And uh, all of this is very, very important. It's something that only human beings can do. If you think about it, our commitments actually define us. They determine who we are. Uh, they determine or reveal who or what we value most in our lives. They even determine who we will become, the commitments we make. The power of commitment is remarkable. And yet we live in a culture that's kind of suspicious about making commitments, even reluctant to make commitments. Because if we commit ourselves to something or someone, we are giving up a certain measure of personal freedom. Uh, I give up some of my time or my stuff or my attention to you if I make some kind of commitment to you. And yet, I argued a couple weeks ago uh, that it is a very good thing to make the right kind of commitments. And that you define who you are when you do that. It's in your commitments that you make promises to someone like to love and to honor and cherish them till death do you part. A, a, a really important commitment. It's in your commitments that you tell someone, I will be your friend. I will have your back till death do us part. It's through our commitments that we become a community. You can only have community in the context of commitment. Uh, it's in our commitments that we build our character and we actually become like Jesus. Jesus was always challenging his followers to make certain commitments. And therefore, I said, we actually, this is the language of Jesus, we actually find ourselves when we lose ourselves in making the right kinds of commitments. Only when we make commitments to people or to ourselves or to God do we begin to define who we are. So I ask you to consider, what are your commitments? And how are your commitments defining you? What do they say about you? Someone who makes a commitment to follow Jesus is committing to listen to and to obey Jesus, to take him seriously when he talks about relationships or resolving conflict or building community or forgiving someone or seeking forgiveness or marriage or parenting or sex or whatever it is. What does Jesus say about it? His wisdom matters most. Now today, we're looking at an area that we don't talk about a lot it's an area where maybe more than any place else people struggle to really commit to and listen to and follow Jesus. It's an area where everybody wants freedom, freedom to do what they want to do. It's the area of finances. Are you glad you're here? Yeah, it's the area of finances. It's an area where Jesus actually had a lot to say. Now, it's kind of ironic we're looking at this subject this weekend, because I feel kind of badly telling you about this, but my own ticket to financial freedom actually uh, came to me in the mail this week. Um, and I don't want to make you feel badly, but I'm so excited about it. I've got to tell you about it. Uh, I got a letter that said, started out, dear Mr. Corey, you have been pre-selected. I mean, I'm not just select. They selected me before they even selected anyone. Pre-selected. Uh, the letter goes on to say, this year with your new credit card, so this is from people who are giving me a brand new credit card that I didn't even ask for. It's incredible. They just sent it to me because they 
pre-selected me. And it says, this year with your new card, you can exercise your, I'm quoting him, new financial freedom. Wow. People with outstanding financial credit like yours, they said, deserve an outstanding credit card like ours. So it's actually not silver, gold, or platinum. It's a double uranium card. You have to carry it around in a lead wallet. It's so good. So incredibly good. And the letter goes on to say, our credit line matches your financial intelligence. So in other words, I get the smart rate reserved for smart people. There are dummies out there that cannot get the rate that I get. And then it says, plus, with every dollar you spend, we will give you bonus points that raise your credit ceiling. So what that means is that if I borrow everything I can on this card, right up max out the limit with my bonus points, I will be able to borrow still more tomorrow. How good is that? And it says with a great rate like this, it makes sense to use your card and use it often. The sooner you start using your card, the sooner you start saving. I mean, just do the math, right? The more you spend, the more you save. Now, to give me even more financial freedom, no matter how much of their money I use, right? Uh, they will let me make just minimum payments that are a fraction of what I'm going to owe them. It's absolutely incredible. And there's a bunch of junk at the bottom of the letter in fine print. I want to go over some of that fine print with you, if, if you don't mind. It's kind of interesting. And I've actually done the math. So the average credit card debt today in the United States of America is just over $10,000. The interest rate on the card that I'm being offered, it's the smart rate, remember, is 24.99%, 25%. Yeah, I don't know about you dummies what your rate would be, but that's the one I get, yeah. On a debt of $10,000, the minimum payment that I can make will be $213.58. I mean, that's hardly anything compared to the fact that I've got $10,000 in my pocket. Now, if I make the minimum payment, how long does it take me to be free and clear of this debt? Let me tell you. Uh, it's kind of an interesting picture. Let's say I make the minimum payment every single month and I do it for a decade, right? A decade. After a decade, after 10 years, I have paid nearly $26,930. That's what I paid. But I now owe 11,790. Not making this up. This is just, you know, how the interest and the minimum payment works together. Um, so let's say I double my efforts. I am not giving up on this. I am gonna do this for another 20 years and uh, I don't miss a single minimum payment. By year 30, I have now paid $77,000, but somehow I owe 13. What's wrong with this picture? And now, uh, as I said, I'm a person of perseverance. And so I keep going. For the next 50 years, I keep this up. I make the minimum payment every single month. And so by year 50, I have now paid $165,000. I now owe $17,515. And I am 113 years old. 
So at this point, I look at the picture, and again, remember, I'm one of the smart people, and I say, I'm going to pay this thing off. I am going to do it. And so I talk to my son, Ian, and I get him to agree to take it on and to pass it on to his children and the children after that and so on and so forth. And if you extend this out to the year 1,000, in other words, 1,000 years, uh, I have paid or will have paid and my, my descendants will have paid $5.1 billion and my heirs will owe $212 million. Do you see how this works? It turns out that the financial freedom this credit card company is offering me uh, to, to borrow this money and to buy things and to get stuff I can't really afford ends up being a kind of bondage. There's no freedom in it at all. Uh, but there's this other opinion, uh, this other approach, this alternative wisdom that is deeply embedded in the values of Jesus' kingdom about the role of commitment and how this relates to our financial lives. And that's what I want to talk about with you this morning. Jesus put it like this. He said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, he says. And so Jesus challenges his followers, his disciples, to look at and deal with their finances differently. He says, if you make certain commitments regarding your finances, regarding your money, these commitments will define you. They will lead to places of greater growth in character, greater trust in God, and greater freedom, financially speaking. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Now, I need to be careful here to point something out. Jesus is not giving us a sneaky way to make more money. It's sometimes taught that way. Uh, this is not a make a deal with God gimmick. You know, if I give, then God will give me more and more and more, and I get richer and richer and richer and blah, blah, blah. That's actually, uh, as some of you will know about this, there is actually a segment of Christianity that sort of teaches a parody of the gospel. We call it the prosperity gospel. It says if you give, God will just keep making you richer and richer and richer. You can't outgive God, as the slogan goes. And I won't mention this person by name, but I know uh, a very high-profile TV preacher uh, who actually said this in his program on TV. He said, I gave away an expensive pair of shoes and three or four more pairs of shoes came back to me. He said, I gave away several watches and he held up as he said, and this very expensive Rolex watch jumped onto my wrist, his words. Friends, Jesus is not telling you how to get a very expensive Rolex watch to jump onto your wrist. That is crap. He is saying there is a different way to live. It is all about living with generosity. Why? Because this is who God is. He is a generous God. Because God himself is generous to you, whether you know it or appreciate it or not. And when we live this way, it results in blessing. All kinds of blessing. Relational blessing, because you're investing in other people's lives when God gives you that opportunity. It, 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 it uh, turns into spiritual blessing, 
because you grow to become more like God. It turns into financial blessing. This blessing happens because you are inviting God into your life, an important area of your life. And you trust him for your provision day to day to day. And you commit to obey him with your resources and you learn to trust him for all of your needs. That is a formula for learning to live with dependence upon God, a formula for rich living, not a formula for getting rich. There's a difference. Now, Jesus makes this very interesting statement. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, In other words, I take him to mean if I practice very little generosity in my life, I will experience very little of the real kingdom of God, very little of the joy, very little of the confidence, very little of the trust, very little of the blessing that comes with God's generosity. If I practice a lot of generosity, well, then I will enter into a much deeper experience of the presence of God in my life and the reality of his kingdom in my life, including my financial life. Now, a really important question is when you think about commitments that you make financially, and we all make them. Most of us here have commitments financially. We're paying a mortgage, most of us, many of us, uh, or we're paying rent, uh, or you might be paying off student loans. I mean, there's just all kinds of commitments that we make financially. Uh, But the question is, when you think about commitments you make financially, and you think about it in terms of this generosity piece, what measure will you use? That's the question. Jesus says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Give and it will be given, he says. Now, I've noticed this over the years that as I as people grow spiritually in their faith and their trust with the Lord, they inevitably wrestle with this issue uh, of making financial commitments. It's inevitable. Can't really be avoided because uh, you come to church and preachers talk about it occasionally. Uh, Jesus talks about it when you read the Bible. If you read in the Old Testament, uh, this whole idea of tithing and so is just interwoven throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And I want to walk you through some of the states that people go through in this process of maturing and spiritual growth. I want to talk about four different states to be exact. And as we do this, you can ask yourself, what measure am I using when we think about being generous with finances? What measure do I want to use? So here's the first level. And we'll just call this the give nothing level. Okay, pretty simple. Uh, This person is simply not giving anything anywhere. And this is maybe more people than you might guess. A sociologist at Notre Dame who has just researched the heck out of this whole area, his name is uh, Dr. Christian Smith. And he has done a massive, massive uh, research project. It's still going on, actually. And in his study, he found that no less than one out of five U.S. Christians, Christians in the United States, uh, give no money at all to anything, religious or secular. And it's just kind of interesting aside, people who have no faith commitment, the percentage is even higher. You know, give no money at all uh, to any kind of uh, charity, uh, religious organization, whatever. Um, And at at each of these four levels that I'm going to mention to you, there was kind of a mindset. There's a way of thinking that tends to keep people stuck right there in that level that we're talking about. What's interesting about folks who are in this level, folks who give absolutely nothing, is they don't think about what they don't give. 
really hardly ever. Nor do they think about what they could give. They just don't. What they do think about a lot is what they don't have. I mean, this is research. They, they are constantly thinking about what they don't have and what they need to get their hands on, right? The stuff that they think they need and the stuff that they think they want. And it's funny, as they get some of that stuff, as time goes along, the list actually just continues to get longer and longer and longer. The book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament says this. It says, whoever loves money, and you could just put stuff. I mean, it's the same point. <laughs> whoever loves stuff, you know, whoever loves money has, never has enough. You hear that? Never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Never. The point is, when I focus solely on me and what I want, or even what I think I need, I can't and I won't ever, ever be satisfied. In fact, the more I get, the less I'm satisfied because I can think of more stuff that I need and that I want. The number one tool that the evil one will use to keep you in the give nothing category is just this distraction. He will keep you always, always thinking about the stuff you don't have and the stuff you want to get your hands on. So much so you never think about what you are giving and you never think about what you could give. You dismiss the idea of living generously just by simply saying, you know, I can't afford to live that way. I can't afford to give that away. Can't afford to do that because I need this. I want that. And that's 20%. That's one in five people who say they follow Jesus. Uh, but they choose not to follow him here. It's very interesting. A lot of folks live with the thought, you know, if I had more money, I would be more generous. If I had more money, I would be more generous. Do you know that research, uh, research demonstrates that that is not true? Uh, the fact is, the lower people's income is, the higher a percentage they give away. That is just a fact. People with less income are generally more generous. So the more money you get, very unlikely you're going to give higher and higher percentage of it away. If you are in this level of giving nothing, you give no money to anything at any time, the evil one will do everything he can to keep you there. Because in a very significant way, you're out of the game. By keeping you focused on what you don't have and what you want to get your hands on, he will take you out of the game. And that helps you say, you know, I'm okay with not giving anything, anywhere, to anyone. But understand... Understand, hear me on this. That is not where the kingdom of Jesus is. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you with the measure you use. That's what Jesus says. A lot of times when you get to know God more deeply, you start to realize the depth of his love and his forgiveness and how he pursues you and wants to bless you, you begin to pursue spiritual growth and you'll say, you know, I have to get out of this category. I just can't keep living without any generosity in my life. And that leads to the next level of giving and we'll just call it the occasional giving level. Uh, this is a person saying, you know, since I'm here, you know, I'm at church and, and I got my wallet with me and the bag goes by and it's kind of embarrassing to always just pass it along. Once in a while, I'll take my wallet out and I'll open it up and 
you know what? Uh, if the bill is ridiculously small, I've got a couple of ones or something. I'm not going to give that. That would even be more embarrassing. But, you know, if I got a 20, you know, not, not too big a bill. I mean, I, I don't want to get overdone here. I'll, you know, I'll take it out and I'll throw that in the plate and I'll feel okay about that. If it's, uh, if it's the right amount, I'll throw it in there. Or you may be watching TV and you see an ad for a child that's hungry and starving and, I don't know, uh, something wells up and you feel moved to give and, and you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give to that this time. But here's the difference. This attitude, this occasional giving level, also embodies the attitude of, of not wanting to be committed to giving. You know, I don't want to be tied down to this idea of giving, so I'll just give when the Spirit moves. It's interesting, uh, Dr. Christian Smith, this, this sociologist who's doing the research at Notre Dame, he calls this guilt giving. He says, that's what it is, it's guilt giving. Uh, or he also uses the term, you know, give when you feel led kind of a thing. There's this weird thing where if I give based on guilt, his research finds, guilt, if ignored long enough, guess what? Goes away. <laughs> it goes away. So I would just encourage you, don't bother giving occasionally. Just hold on long enough. The guilt will go away and you won't have to give anything. Um, so too, you know, even the motivation to give or to live generously, if you ignore it long enough, you can get it to go away. But here's the thing. The Bible has quite a different message to us, to those of us who want to follow Jesus. And it makes us squirm. We have to wrestle with this. This is the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, he says. So in other words, Paul is suggesting that for someone following Jesus, giving ought to be systematic, not sporadic. He says that it ought to be planned and intentional. Intentionally, he talks about saving it up. And what is more, it ought to be proportional because he said it ought to be in keeping with your income. So swallow hard. Now, okay, let's take the next step. This leads to this next level of giving, something that some Christians do. It's called tithing. And I want to talk about this because this uh, is really important for our church, for any church, but also for those who want to seriously follow Jesus. Tithing is talked about quite a lot in the Bible. Uh, it's a practice that goes way, way, way back in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. We're told to give, it says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord, he says. Uh, there was this teaching that the, the very first tenth of what someone had just simply belonged to God. Um, and so when you give it, it's not like you're giving God a gift. You're just acknowledging the fact that literally everything that you have, everything that you own, every resource that you call yours is actually just a gift from God. And so you would bring your tithe to God, one-tenth of what you harvested, whether cattle, livestock, uh, it didn't matter. It was an agrarian economy, of course. In our day, that would mean one-tenth of what you make. That's right, one-tenth of what you make. And they would bring the uh, the very first tenth, it was called first fruit. So it was the first thing they did with what they harvested or what they had. Right off the top, and they would give that to God. And some people wonder, well, wasn't tithing part of the Old Testament law that Jesus came to free us up from? Good question. I'm glad you asked it. Actually, the practice of tithing goes back to before the time when even the law of Moses was given. 
Some of you will know this. Moses at Mount Sinai, given the Ten Commandments, he gives the law to the people of God. But understand, tithing was actually practiced a long time before the law was ever given. If you know anything about the early chapters of Genesis, you got Cain and Abel. And they actually get into a little uh, fricas over this whole thing of giving. And it appears that there's some sense of, uh, with Abel of giving of his first fruits, the same concept of tithing. Uh, we know for a fact that Abraham, who came way before Moses, gave to a priest called Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils that were taken by defeating some of God's enemies. There was this practice of tithing long before the law was ever given. And the point is just this. Tithing was a practice of devout followers of God almost right from the beginning. And tithing was a practice of devout followers in Jesus' day, coincidentally. Now, people were so careful about, many people were so careful about their tithing that some of them had actually come to believe that if they tithed, that was almost the only thing that mattered. Um, they didn't need to care for widows and or orphans or care for the needy. They didn't need to justice, that stuff. What really mattered was just that they tithed. And uh, Jesus really didn't sit well with that perspective. That what he said was this. He took on the Pharisees. They were the ones that were thinking this way, some of them. And so he said, woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter, that is justice and the love of God, without leaving the former undone. That's what Jesus says. In other words, Jesus says, you've got to care about widows and orphans. People are going to come across your path that you do not get the luxury to ignore. People with needs. And you've got to live generously, Jesus says, without leaving the former tithing, he says, undone. That's what Jesus says. Bottom line, you see, the practice of tithing is good because it can help us become more like God. Bottom line. It's good because it reminds me that literally everything I have, 100% of it, is really a gift from God. My job is a gift from God. My earnings are a gift from God. My time is a gift from God. My relationships are a gift from God. And when I set aside 10% of what I make and use that to further kingdom things, it just moves me in the direction of doing justice and growing in generosity. I'm actually making a commitment that my stuff and my life won't be just about me getting what I want and getting more. Very interesting. Uh, now, this tithing thing is not a legalistic thing. Jesus just pointed that out in the passage that we read. You can't go, oh, I tithe, check, move on. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not quite that simple. Tithing is something that is supposed to be increasingly producing this heart attitude of generosity in us. It's kind of a concrete way of measuring, am I living with generosity, living like Jesus lives? Now, if you've never practiced or made the commitment of tithing, you are probably almost certainly thinking, what if I cannot afford to tithe? And this is actually the primary thought that will keep most people from ever even attempting tithing. In the research of Christian Smith, he found, this is actually um, a little bit surprising to me, in, the in his research he found that only 10% of people who say they follow Jesus give a tenth or more of their income to God. 
1 in 10. So a lot of Christians uh, hear what I'm talking about this morning and blow it off or, oh, he's full of it or that's what you expect a preacher to say or I don't know what you say exactly, but you, you really don't wrestle with it. Give a tenth or more of my income to God. The number one reason or excuse that's used is just I can't afford to tithe. Cannot afford it. And you know what? That might be true. I mean, if you keep spending exactly what you spend, if your income doesn't increase, if you keep God out of your finances, because that's what you're doing when you don't obey him here, if you never learn to trust God and honor him with your giving, you are probably right. You cannot afford to tithe. But understand what God is asking you in this. Let's try to be clear. In tithing, God is saying, I want you to trust me with your needs. I want you to trust me with your finances. I want you to trust me with your first 10% of what you make. And then see what you and I will do with your resources together. You see, managing your money this way with making commitments like this is really all about trust. It's a trust thing. You've heard of the old saying, $20 is $20, right? There's an old couple, Pete and Maud. They go to a carnival, and there's a guy there giving uh, the old biplane, you know, giving rides in a biplane, 20 bucks per person. Pete is dying to do this. He wants to go on this ride. Maud is like, no way. 20 bucks is 20 bucks. We're not doing it. And the pilot says, you know what? I have been hearing that complaint and that argument for decades. I am tired of it. Here's what I'll do. I will take both of you up in my biplane. And if you can go through the entire ride, not a whine, not a peep, not a word out of you, I will give it to you. You can have the ride for free. But if I hear so much as a peep, it's 20 bucks a person. And so Pete and Maude do it. They get in the old biplane. It's an unbelievable ride, right? This pilot is doing everything he knows how to do, barrel rolls, loop-de-loops, somersaults, you name it. Not a peep out of either one of them. And as he lands the plane, he yells back, man, that is amazing. That was the most daring ride I have ever given. I can't believe I didn't hear a peep out of you. And Pete says, well, I almost said something when Maude fell out of the plane. But 20 bucks is 20 bucks. 20 bucks is 20 bucks. Except when you give that 20 bucks to Jesus. Let me explain. Jesus' followers have been learning for over 2,000 years that five loaves and two fish are five loaves and two fish, except when you give them to Jesus. 20 bucks is 20 bucks, except when you give it to Jesus. And then you don't know what he's going to do with it. There is this Old Testament passage, and I've read it before. It's from Malachi. And it is, and I've said this before, it is a unique passage of Scripture. Because ordinarily, we understand we should not be testing God, right? I don't recommend that as a practice, that you test God. Uh, But God says this in this passage. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, he says. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven 
and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. And as I said, as far as I know, in all the Bible, the only place where God invites people to test him is in this business of their finances, this thing of tithing. And I think that's because we're just afraid. We're, we're scared to death to, that he would actually take care of us. We just don't know if we can really believe that. And that's why, uh, as a church, we do this goofy thing. And I just admit, it's goofy. Um, because we know that how frightening this is to people. We have this thing called the Tide Challenge. You have a card in your bulletin that kind of explains it. The idea is pretty simple. We challenge people. Take 90 days. Take three months and practice this thing of tithing. Make a commitment to tithe. Give God the first 10% of whatever God gives you, whatever that is. And if the end of that time, that 90 days, that three months, if it is clearly not sustainable for you, we will happily, and I mean this, refund everything that you have given in the last 90 days. And here's the deal. We have had people take this challenge. And uh, once they decided to trust God and make that kind of commitment with their finances, uh, just to let God be involved, because that's what you're doing when you do something like this. You're saying, okay, God, be involved in my finances. I've never done anything like this before. Uh, show me that you can be trusted. Show me that you can provide. Show me that this can work. And uh, we have had many be amazed at what God did with their giving and what God did with them in terms of blessing and provision. Now, I have one more uh, level that I want to talk about. We've mentioned three. The last one is sacrificial giving. Um, some of you are thinking, hey, tithing is plenty sacrificial. Well, remember that thing I talked about a moment ago? Not necessarily. A lot of people, uh, Old Testament attitude towards tithing was this is what I owe God. So sacrificial giving. Mark uh, tells us in his gospel, says that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. People would come to the treasury to worship and they would bring their tithes, their gifts, some of their offerings. Sometimes it would be livestock or food, but if they had changed it into money, there was a place where they could drop that money into a, a gathering place. And it says, many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny calling his disciples to him. This is interesting. So Jesus takes this opportunity. He sees this. He watches what's happened. He sees what this woman has done. He calls his disciples over to him. Teaching moment. He says, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. He doesn't, he's not condemning that, but he says they gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And what so stirred Jesus' heart in that is this woman was trusting God with everything, literally everything, sacrificial giving. And some of you know way more about this than I do. Holly and I have tasted this a few times in our lives. We've always tithed uh, here to our local church. And then too, like many of you, we give uh, over and above a tithe to other things. We make a a faith promise to support our missions. And we have some family members who are on the mission field, but they're not here at the church. And, and uh, we support people like that and certain organizations like IJM and so on. I mean, we've just felt led to do that over and above what we give as a tithe. But there have been several times too in our lives when we felt led to give a gift that was really for us very sacrificial, so much so that it meant kind of adjusting our lifestyle, changing, you know, buying things that we would normally buy. 
And I just want to tell you, when we have done that, when we felt led to do that and trusted God to do that, we saw God work through our giving and through blessing others and through changing us right here. We were blessed to do it. Now, here's the deal. This is the bottom line. Hear me on this. The biggest risk that you can run financially is to not trust God with your money and just use all your resources, all your stuff, all your money for yourself. That's the biggest risk you can take. That is the worst thing you could do financially because one day your life is going to end. Is that news to you? Well, that's something we avoid thinking about though, isn't it? And you are going to stand before God and so am I. And in that moment, you and I will see many things with crystal clarity that are very foggy to us right now. One of them will be that money doesn't love you. Did you hear that? Money does not love you. Jesus does. Money didn't die on a cross for you. Jesus did. And money cannot and will not save you. But Jesus will. Money is little more than a tool, friends. A tool that when used wisely and generously will help you grow to become more like Jesus. It will help you to have a lasting kingdom impact on this world. And so test God. I wouldn't normally say that to you, but test God in this. And say, God, I'm going to trust you with my finances. And if you do, you will find a kind of financial freedom that just hoarding and acquiring things for yourself will never, ever give you. And I mean that. Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. Jesus said that. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the treasure you use, it will be, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, Jesus followers, let's learn to measure really well.